Word of God before us tonight, and uh, we're continuing our sermon series uh, that's looking at the overview of the Bible, and we're up to the kings of Israel, that's what we're doing tonight. Uh, There's no shortage of material, and so we're going to pray that God would help us, and if I can remind you at the start that we've got Q&A at the end, Uh, you can ask me about all sorts of things, Uh, how Glenn Maxwell's going in the creek, no, you can ask me... Whatever you would like afterwards in our question and answer time. So please take advantage of that. And if you've got a question on the way through that you might forget, jot it down in your Care and Connect card so you remember. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active. And because you're living and present here, we know, Lord, that you want to help us to understand it. So use your Holy Spirit and come work in our hearts, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, so tonight we're thinking about leadership. We're thinking about leadership. And I wonder if I asked you tonight, what do you want from leaders, from your leaders, what would you say? What are you looking for from your leaders? Opportunity to participate, church. So, so leadership, okay, it's a good answer. I want leadership from my leaders. Funnily enough, there are often people who have a position of leadership who don't lead. So that is actually very helpful. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Someone else? Integrity, because I want to be able to trust the people that I'm following. Absolutely. Someone else. Wisdom. So we want to have leaders who are wise with the responsibility that's been entrusted to them, for sure. Someone else. Justice, because if they're going to have all this power, we want them to be doing stuff in the right way that we can trust. Yeah, absolutely. One more. What do we want from our leaders? A plan. Where on earth are we going? Can you tell me? Yes, I personally like to know where we're going. That's good. So what do we want from our leaders? All this stuff and much more that you've thought, but you haven't called out. In short, I think what we want from our leaders is uh, really perfection, don't we? That's what we want. Uh, We want leaders who make no mistakes, who are absolutely amazing, and who we can follow with all our hearts, right? The only problem is the people that we're following are profoundly human, aren't they? And they have all the same flaws and failings that we have. And so as we long for perfection, it can be a pretty frustrating thing looking for leaders. Well, here's our overview of the Bible. And if you haven't seen it before, this is, uh, this is my picture overview of the Bible. We've got Genesis here and creation all the way through to the book of Revelation and new creation there. And we've now come to this point here where we've gone from the promises made to Abraham that he'll be a great nation, have a great name, and bless all the earth. We've gone through Exodus out of Egypt. We've gone to the edge of the promised land and found we couldn't enter. And then last week, Alec told us in, how the, in the book of Joshua, they came to the promised land and they took it over. Well, this week, we've come to the point where we've got kings, kings ruling in Israel. But before we get there, we hear these words in Judges chapter 17. In those days, they had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. In other words, it was chaos because there wasn't a central leader in Israel. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to do a case study. Basically, we're going to look at Israel's leadership and see how they did um, in leading God's people. Before we do that, we're going to do a little bit of geography. So history and geography tonight, guys. Okay, fantastic, right? Who doesn't love those subjects? Uh, so history and geography. So here's, uh, here's the, the, uh, the overview of the land of Israel. Now, Alec told us last week that Joshua took them in and they all the tribes went and got their allocations. Does anyone know how many tribes there were? 
12, great answer. And so what you can see up there is 12 tribes allocated. Some uh, important bits of geography. The, land, uh, the River Jordan runs from the north down to the south and splits it into tribes that are on the east and tribes that are on the west. And these guys, as Alec told us last week, they got to get their land without a fight, but they had to come and help their brothers and sisters on the other side. Then we've got Jerusalem, really important city uh, just here. And then later on, we're going to see tonight that the, the nation of Israel, the land of Israel, is actually split into two. It's going to be called Judah down in the south. And in the north, everything up the north is going to be called Israel. Now, this is really confusing because they're the people of God. They're called Israel. And yet after a certain time, the people in the south are called Judah and the people in the north are called Israel. Remember, it'll help us out a little bit later. Okay, so that was the plan under Joshua. What we're going to see is after Joshua had taken the land, something happened. The generation that grew up under Joshua was faithful, but then came another generation who forgot everything. As an aside, it means that we need to do a good job of passing on what we believe to our kids, because they failed to, and the next generation were terrible. And God let raiders come into the land. Have a look what we see here in Judges chapter 2. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies, as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. I don't know, how long have you, has anyone read the book of Judges? Have you heard of Samson and all those kind of cool stories? That's in the book of Judges, right? In the book of Judges, what we have is this cycle again and again and again. God's people are faithful, right? And then what happens is when the judge dies, they forget about what the judge had taught them. And then they get bad and sinful, and then everything goes terrible. And then they go, oh, it's gone terrible. We're going to call out to God. And then God raises up a judge for them, and you're back to the top of the clock again. Okay, And again and again and again, this cycle happens. And if you don't read the book of Judges, that's it. Again and again and again, just substitute new names in as the people have salvation from God, and then forget God and sin. So it goes round and round and round. It's a pretty distressing state of affairs. And so we see God's mercy always comes in, but the people are forgetful of God's goodness. And we see there's a reason that God left some of the people in the land. In the next couple of verses, we read this. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, because the nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors... And has not listened to me, I'll no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I'll use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in the way as their ancestors did. Now, can you see my little illustration? There's an illustration for each of these points. Now, that's, you know, it's a testy thing. Someone said to me, it's not a test tube. And I said, yeah, but that would have been skinny. So anyway, it's a flask, a testing flask. Okay, everyone with me? Okay, good. Uh, So here's the thing. The nations will be a test of Israel's obedience. When they're they're being successful, the nations will be driven out. When they're sinful, the nations will come and take over the land again. So what will happen? 
Well, the people get sick of this judge's cycle. And we see in 1 Samuel 8, as Carolyn just read for us, that they come to one of the judges, a man called Samuel, a prophet and a judge. This is what they say to him. You are old. Great way to open, hey? You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. See, this is a funny, interesting thing, right? So Samuel had been appointed as a judge over Israel, okay? And who made him a judge over Israel? God did. God did by pouring his spirit onto him and saying, this is your job. Now, what normally happens if you're a king is your sons and daughters inherit the kingship. But if you're a prophet, you don't get to pass on power by saying to your kids, well done, kids, it's now yours. Because it's God's job to appoint. So first of all, Samuel was doing the wrong thing by trying to pass power onto his kids. Secondly, his kids were terrible. And so nobody wanted them to be the rulers. And so eventually they say, all right, we're done with this judge thing. We want a king. Now it's a double failure. Because who was the king of Israel at this time? Yep. God. God was the king of Israel. So when they said, we want a king, they were rejecting God. Secondly, though, and this is really important, why did they want a king? We want a king to be like all the other nations. Now, that's a second failure because Israel was supposed to be distinctly different from all the other nations. They were supposed to be God's light into the world. And so now here they are saying, we don't want God and we don't want to be different from all the other nations. It was a complete disaster. And so we see that God had been rejected as their king. Well, what would happen? The people decide, and God says, you can give them a king. And so they go to appoint a king. And so what happens is they call a big national gathering, and a tribe is called forward. And then a clan is called forward, and then a family is called forward, and then a name is drawn from a hat, and they go, it's Saul. And they go, Saul, come forward. And they can't find him. And they go hunting around, and they're checking out the back, And eventually, they find this guy called Saul, who's had his name called out to be the king, hiding behind the food stands. He's hiding. This is what it says in 1 Samuel 10. They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than all the others. You can say, I wouldn't be qualified as a leader. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Look at that, that works so much better in the evening. You guys are great. I had a deafening silence in the morning. Well done, great participation points for you guys. So they shouted out, long live the king. So it starts off great. Saul gives them some victories and everything starts to go well until Saul decides that he wants to mix up the jobs. There are three very important jobs in the Old Testament. There's someone who's a prophet, speaks the word of God, There's someone who's a priest who does the sacrifices of God. And then there's someone who's a king who does the ruling under God. Now, Saul is waiting for Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice. 
And as he waits, he waits for seven days and eventually he goes, all right, everyone's about to run home. I'm going to do the sacrifice. And so as the king, he also operates as the priest. Bad idea. And just after he's done it, Samuel turns up. Here's what happens next. The great start that the king of Israel had made, this is what God says. I, re- I regret that I've made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. I mean, God bless Samuel. His kids were rejected as rulers. And then the king that he anointed as ruler was also rejected by God. I reckon he's just angry. He's very angry. But it's a sad situation because God has now said he rejects Saul as the king. So the next thing that happens after Israel's first king fails... The next thing that happens is God says to Samuel, I'm going to find a replacement for this king. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to go out and find Jesse. Okay, find Jesse and have a look at his boys and I'll tell you which one I'm picking as king. Well, Samuel goes to Jesse and he finds the oldest son of Jesse and he says, what a fine, handsome lad. I reckon he's got a good shot of being the replacement Saul, right? Good lad. Then God says this extraordinary thing. Have a look up on the screen. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, for some of us here tonight, we are thinking, yes, that is great news because I've got a shot of being a leader, right? Because I'm not as pretty or as tall as I should be, right? Some of you thinking that? Or some of you thinking, oh, I didn't know that. Maybe I can add something to my prettiness already. But here's the thing, God is actually not looking at the outward appearance. But that's what our world does all the time, doesn't it? Okay, it's a good answer. Our world looks at the outside all the time. And what it says here is when God is looking for a leader, he is looking inside. He's looking to character and he's looking to heart. And that actually should both inspire us and humble us. What are we like on the inside? Are we leadership ready in our hearts? And when we go appointing people or voting them in in our schools and and whatever as we do to appoint people, do we look in the same way that the Lord looks? Well, God found someone whose heart was beautiful, but it took getting through seven sons until he got to the end. And then he said, "Where's? have you got anybody else? Because God hasn't told me who's going to be the king. He said, well, we've got David, the shepherd boy. He says, get him here. God says, he's my boy. I want him because his heart was right. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. That means he poured the oil on his head, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David and Samuel went to Ramah. So now we've got a problem, right? Who's the king in Israel at this point? Saul. And now we've got someone who's appointed to be the king of Israel, who's David. Now, if you read the book of uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, you'll see it is an amazing uh, wrestle between these two The king who is and the king who's to come. It's a huge wrestle, okay? But follow it through, and what we see, that this king in waiting is incredibly faithful. He never forces God's hand. He never organizes a coup. He never says, hey, I'm the anointed one. You're out of here. He doesn't do that. He waits for God's timing. And God's timing comes when a big battle happens, and Saul and his son Jonathan are both killed. At that point... David is made to be the king of Israel. We see in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 5, David was 30 years old when he became king. 
and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in there. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. Now you might think to yourself, why do we need this piece of information? Well, here's what I want you to note. When David became king, Jerusalem was not the capital city of Israel. In fact, there were people living in Israel called the Jebusites. And they lived there unhindered because it was the strongest fortress in all of, of Israel, right? So David goes, I want that. And so he goes up there, takes the city and makes it the brand new Canberra. Okay? So that's how to think about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is Canberra, except with much better defences. It's actually a place worth defending, which Canberra might not necessarily be, right? So, so it's, it's an awesome thing. David says, I'm the new king. I've got a new city, which is the centre of our land, and I am ruling over it, which is awesome. Well done, David. So Jerusalem is David's capital city. And then in Jerusalem... David says, I want to build a temple for the Lord. I'm going to build a house for the Lord. And God says to him something in 2 Samuel 7. And guys, I've done this all day, but I'm going to do it with you as well. I want you to know when people say 2 Samuel 7, you need to do this. Ah, 2 Samuel 7. Well done, Alec. You were doing it. You're ready. Uh, so what I want you to do, 2 Samuel 7, and you guys go, ah, 2 Samuel 7. You're right? You're right? You got it? You got it? Okay. Now, for those of you who don't know why you're stroking your chin and going, ah, 2 Samuel 7, here's why. Okay, this is an incredible covenant that God makes with David. Something extraordinary is promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Okay, right, right, okay, but let's, let's find out why, okay? God speaks to David and he says, the Lord, de- uh, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up one of your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Not so extraordinary so far. He is the one who will build a house for my name. David, don't worry. You won't get to build the temple, but one of your offspring will. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, I want you guys to think about this. If you do something great in your life, how long do you reckon it'll last for? A day or two. That's right. I mean, go and build on the beach, right? Build a magnificent sandcastle on the beach. Has anyone done this? And if you're having a holiday on the beach, right, you make this awesome thing, and then you come back the next day and what? Somebody has had great fun stomping through the middle of it, right? So you build it back, it's gone. And if you come back in two weeks' time, the little grains of sand won't remember what you've done at all. And that's a great metaphor for what we do in our lives. Very rarely will we make an impact that lasts beyond our lifetime. What about a hundred years? That would be awesome, right? What if I did something that lasted for a hundred years? Here, David is told that one of his offspring will reign on his throne. How long for? Forever. It will be an eternal promise. That's why we stroke our chin at 2 Samuel chapter 7, because God is saying one of your kids will reign forever. That's awesome if you're a king. Okay? That's awesome. 
So that's what's promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this tells us something about Solomon, but the ultimate fulfillment will be Jesus. Jesus will be the one who's the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. Now I want you to see how power goes from David to his son who will rule after him. Now David has a number of sons. In fact, he has, I, I, I was looking it up on, uh, on, on the computer this afternoon, I, I think we lose count at about 20-something. Lots and lots of sons, as well as girls as well. You'll be surprised and pleased to know, right? Lots of kids. Uh, I think he had uh, eight wives. So that, that'll be a good start on lots of kids, right? But here's the thing. Who would naturally become the king after David? Sorry? The oldest would naturally become a king after David. Do you know what the oldest does? Organises a coup against his dad. No, actually, no, the eldest is killed by the second third eldest, I think. That's what happened. The, the eldest is killed by the third eldest. And then the fourth eldest organizes a coup against his dad. Anyway, it's all pretty mucky. Who becomes the king? Well, this is what happens. When David is dying, when he's old and crusty, okay, this is what happens. In 1 Kings chapter 1, we read this. Notice who the mother of this person is. You ready? You might be surprised. Then King David said, call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Do you know what position number Solomon was? Tenth. Tenth. And yet he becomes the king. Who's his mum? Why do we know that name? She was married to someone else. And she was the woman that David had an affair with whose husband he killed. That boy, that boy, the boy of that lady is the one who becomes king over Israel. It's an extraordinary turn of events. I'm not sure it's how we'd want to see power transition in any normal kingship. So Solomon succeeds his father. Well, let's learn about Solomon. Now, you've heard of Solomon, haven't you? King Solomon? Well, uh, I don't know if you guys remember, there used to be an ad for Tim Tams, maybe it's too old now, um, where a genie popped out when you have a packet of Tim Tams, and he says three wishes and all of that. All right. I want to tell you guys that Solomon has a Tim Tam genie moment, except it's not a genie, it's God, Okay. Solomon is sleeping, and in his, in his dream, he has a vision of God. And God says to him, hey, Solomon, I can give you whatever you ask for. What would you ask for? If God said to you, I'll give you anything, anything you can have, what would you say? Now, don't call it out, because it might condemn us. I want you to watch what Solomon asked for when God really gave him the Tim Tam Genie treatment and said, you can have anything you want. Have a listen to what he said. Here it is in uh, 1 Kings 3. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. Who is able to govern this great people of yours? Now, that's a great answer, right? 
He says, God, I have this huge task and I'm not sure how to do it. Give me wisdom. That's the W under the crown there, right? That's the, yeah. Give me wisdom to do the job of being a king. And do you know the best answer? Comes from God. Have a look what God says about this. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And because of that, here's what God says. He says, you know what? I am going to make you wise. You're going to be the wisest man who ever lived. And because you didn't ask for wealth and long life and for riches, he said, I'm going to give you all of that as well. That's a bonus price. Pretty good, right? Probably suggests that Solomon was wise before he asked for wisdom. That's, that's, I'm just, just saying that, okay? But he got more wisdom. He was famous for it. And so Solomon is granted wisdom plus. Wisdom plus. Well, then Solomon says, well, I've got all this wealth now, and I'm rich, and I've got peace everywhere. What am I going to do? I'm going to build Dad's house. I'm going to build the temple that I was asked to build. And this is what God says to him after he built the temple. Uh, that's a temple. Can you see the steps going up to the building there? Little low door. You've got it. Great. That's my icon. Very good. Uh, in 1 Kings 9, we read this. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all he desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you made before me. I've consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Now, do you guys know that in Jerusalem today, we still have the foundations for that temple? Do you know this? It's called the Temple Mount, and you can still go there today. And Jews still pray there each day. Did you know this? Has anyone been? Jeff, you have, haven't you? It's extraordinary, right? They still go to this place. Why? Have a look on the screen what it says. God says, my eyes and my heart will always be there. There's something special about this place in all the earth. Okay? And so God, under Solomon, has a temple established. And he says that he will dwell with his people. Well, that's awesome. So now we've got God's people in God's place under God's rule. And everything's looking brilliant. So let's pack up the Bible and go home. Sounds great, right? Again, a bit like you, Alec. We got, we got into the promised land. You think it's all done. Well, here you could say Solomon's got everything right. <gasps> and what happens? Well, Solomon had another W in his life, and it wasn't wisdom. It was wives. Have a listen to what it says in chapter 11. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Incidentally, not all wives do this, but his wives did. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. So this great king ends up going, I'm going to trade in the living God for statues made of stone. His wives led him astray. And it's a terrible tragedy, because here's what happens next. Listen from verse 11. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. See, what happens is Solomon is faithless and it condemns his kingdom. And what comes next is a true tragedy. One of the prophets of God, a guy here called Ahijah, meets another bloke, a guy called Jeroboam. And he takes off the cloak that he's wearing and he tears it into 12 pieces. Why 12? Because there are 12 tribes in Israel. And he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. See, 
I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. So basically what God says is this is going to happen. And tragically, the kingdom is split. Now we have that Israel in the north and Judah in the south that we were talking about before. Jeroboam and Rehoboam become the kings of Israel and Judah. A tragedy, really, for God's people. See, what was supposed to keep the God's king in charge was this arrangement, that there was a prophet, that's a scroll, see the, the little icon there? That's a scroll, right? There was a prophet, someone who would bring the word of God to the king and call him out when he did the wrong thing. There was a priest, that's the little miniature temple. There was a priest who would offer sacrifices for his forgiveness. And there would be a king who was always a king under the great king. Are you with me? That was supposed to be the arrangement of the people of God in Israel. But they neglected it. And the whole of the Old Testament is filled up with the history of the kings of Israel. And here's what it looks like. It looks like a great start. And then it goes down and down and down as they refuse to listen to the word of God. You know your Old Testament is pretty big, right? You've got a history of the kings called one and two kings. And then just in case you missed it the first time, you've got one and two chronicles. Okay, so you get a second account of the kings of Israel. And then you've got all the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Zechariah and all the prophets. And they're writing to the king saying, you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to repent. The way you're going isn't right. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. They do it again and again and again. And do you know what the kings of Israel do? They don't listen. And Jess going to tell us the outcome of that story, but it is a tragic decline. And what we end up thinking is, the Old Testament finishes with a hunger for a righteous son of David. 2 Samuel 7 said, one of the descendants of David will rule in his throne forever. Where is it? We're hanging out. Well, Fortunately, Jesus helps us figure out this leadership thing. Have a look at the way that Luke introduces Jesus. Okay? Remember that we're hanging out for a son of David. Have a look at the way he introduces. Today, in the town of in the town of David, right? In the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the promised king. He is the Lord. And then uh, John writes in John chapter 20, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. See, Jesus is the King. He's the Son of David. It only took a thousand years for him to come. But here's what Jesus tells us about leadership, some really important things. Here's what he says. He gives us a command. Do you remember what Jesus did with his disciples? He, uh, he got down on his knees. He, he took off his outer clothing. And he got down on his knees and he took the dirty feet of his disciples. And what did he do with them? He washed them. And so if we want to know what leadership looks like, Jesus, the Son of God, got on his hands and knees and washed the feet of his disciples. And he says, you are to do likewise. If you want to be great, Jesus says, serve. So as you guys think about leadership, as you think about the roles that are entrusted to you, if you want to be great, the path to greatness is service. And Jesus models this for us, doesn't he? Where, as he becomes king on the cross, he says, even the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And because he did that, the other awesome thing that Jesus does for us as leaders is he offers to clean us up. 
we're all going to fail and fall short. And because of the forgiveness that's in Jesus, we can be washed off and be clean in his sight. Well, some of you are sitting here and going, yeah, 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 but I'm not a leader. I don't lead anything. Everybody pulls me, everyone tells me where to go. I'm not a leader. I don't have anyone to follow. I'd like someone to follow me, but they don't. So you think this is a whole ser- sermon tonight's been, uh, you know, not very easy to apply for me. Well, what if I'm not a leader? Well, here's what the Bible tells us. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, notice what it says here, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live as peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So I'd say to you, we need to pray. Someone said to me a while ago that we have the leaders we pray for. In other words, if you don't like the leadership, guess whose fault that is? It's probably ours. See, as Australians, what's our response to leadership most of the time? It's cynical, right? We want to see their flaws. We want to call out their failures. We want to undermine anyone who thinks that they've got power. But that's not godly and it's not Christian. If you don't like the leadership in charge, pray for them. Don't try and undermine them and white ant them. Pray for them. How long, how often do we pray for the Prime Minister of Australia? Do you know who his name is? ScoMo. Does someone say ScoMo? That's outstanding. Okay. So... Uh, We might not have a lot of respect for him. My question would be, when was the last time that you, not everyone else sitting around you, but what was the last time you prayed for ScoMo? Do you know that he's a Christian? So we have a Christian Prime Minister of Australia, and in this church here, I'm just judging by your heads down, looking quietly, we, I won't say you, but we have done a terrible job of praying for him. Would that be right? Now that's a tragedy, isn't it? So even if you're not a leader, I want to say to you, God calls you to pray for leaders. Pray for all those in authority. Pray for the principal of your school. Pray for the boss at your work. Pray for the people who guide and direct your life. Don't just rail against them. Lift them up before God and ask that they might be the leaders that you long for them to be. Aside from that, I reckon most of us lead. Most of us lead. You will have some influence somewhere, and then we need to think about how we do that job. I want to suggest to you two dangers that we need to avoid. Firstly, as you lead, don't be a leader that seeks to replace God. Everyone heard me carefully here? The problem with Israel was they said, God, we don't want you. Give us a leader that we can touch. Give us a really tangible leader. Having you as our king is awkward because we can't see you, God. We want a real flesh and blood leader. We're trading God in for a human. Now, here's the problem. As you lead, don't project that you've taken the place of God. We need to lead humbly. We need to know that we are people under authority. Are you with me? So we never lead with absolute power. We lead with humility and service. So as you lead, don't seek to replace God. As a follower, don't believe a leader can replace God. Are you with me? Don't invest all your hopes into leaders who will fail. They're just human like you are. So don't believe, as you follow, don't believe a leader can replace God. Okay. Since we are all imperfect leaders, we all need three things. I'm going to suggest to you we need a prophet, we need a priest, 
And we need a king. So when you're leading, you need a prophet, a priest, and a king. Where will I get God's word directed to me? Well, hopefully you come to church and you hear from it. But have you heard this little book? This, this book here is called the Bible. If you want to lead, I would say to you, open yourself up to hear God rebuke you, encourage you, challenge you. Have the prophet, have the word of God speak into your life if you're going to lead. Don't neglect the word of God, right? Secondly, we need a priest. We need someone to say to us, your sins can be forgiven. That's Jesus. We need Jesus in our lives and we need to have him as our king. You see, we need to be learning from God's word. We need to love the Lord our God who will offer us free forgiveness. And we need to serve as those who know the true leadership is with God and not ourselves. Tonight, I want to encourage you, we need to find our story in God's story. We need to be the people who see that God is the ultimate, best, flawless King. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for Jesus, that he was a flawless leader, that he shows us what it means to lay down our lives for others. For those of us who lead, Father, forgive us when we fail. Cleanse us, empower us, help us to lead others to you for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, do you know what? We could probably do a lot more on leadership, but there's some good principles to get us started. A short introduction to the kings of Israel. Jeff's going to show us next week the incredible outcome of what it means to be people who might neglect some of those things. So come back next week. Uh, Have we got any questions? Things that uh, arise that cause you to ask what? does that mean? Why did that happen? Questions? Alec. Uh, What happened to the priests during all this King's project? What happened to the priests? They seem to be missing in action and we get very little about the tabernacle until the temple comes along. Until the temple comes along? Yeah, I, I assume that they're still ministering quietly, but because of the power str- uh, struggle that's happened, that they just get neglected. And so because there's so much uh, idolatry around, um, I imagine that the temple just continues to fall into disrepair. In fact, we see, and Jeff will tell us something about this next week, I assume, a guy called Josiah ends up wandering into the temple and finding the law of God and going, oh, you know what, we've neglected God. So I suspect at various times that their idolatry just meant that the priests kept on falling down the power structure order. That'd be my guess. Come back. Yeah, I think it, it is intriguing. They, they certainly don't stay right up there like Moses and Aaron. They're, they're always much further down the, the order. Yeah, it's a good observation. Yeah, someone else? Yeah, Naomi. So in well, 2 Samuel 7, when it oh, talks about... Oh, we should strike about, our chins. Yeah, yeah, ah, very good. Yes, keep going. <laughs> um, when it talks about, obviously you said it's, it's referencing Jesus, um, and it says... Um, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. Obviously, we know that Jesus was, um, I guess, flogged and and wounded by human hands. But we'd have a problem with the first bit. Yeah, yeah, the the doing wrong part. Yeah. So uh, I had a lovely conversation with someone straight after the um, morning service on this exact question. So it's a really good question, Naomi. I think it's helpful and it's worth clarifying. So here's the thing. What, what, um, what God's doing when he speaks through Nathan to David 
is he's saying, here's the future. And we go, when, when we look at it, we see it like, um, let me see. Uh, like it's, uh, if I draw a picture on this piece of paper, uh, let me just quickly just draw a picture. I'm going to draw a house and a tree and a mountain behind it. Okay, guys, here we go. Okay, this is an amazing picture, right? Okay, when, when we look at that, okay, we go, cool, house, tree, mountain. And we go, all of, yeah, it's terrible, right? Okay, but here's the thing. So we see that, right? And we go, oh, they're all happening at the same time. Tree, house, mountain. If you know that it's a photo right, of a real place, if you went there, right, if you went there, there would be a house, then there would be a tree, and then way off in the distance, there'd be a mountain, right? But when we look at the photo, they're all right next to each other. Do, do you see what I mean? When the prophecy is made, it's speaking about the next thousand years, thousand years. But it gives us one snapshot. And so as we read the details, we go, yeah, but but what about blah, blah, blah? And so what it's telling us is pieces of information that will unfold across a thousand years until Jesus is the fulfillment. So will kings who do wrong be punished? Yep. Will Jesus be flogged? Yep. When they end up in one sentence, I go, did Jesus do wrong to get punished? And we go, that doesn't sound right. And my thing would be the information is true, but it might not all be fulfilled in one moment. And the bit that is alluding to Jesus may also be re- uh, alluding to the kings who come in between. Okay? So when it reads off in one sentence, we just go, oh, crikey, did Jesus do wrong? And I'm saying, no, but kings who do wrong will be punished. Jesus will be flogged, but it won't be the same thing as to go, the sun is going to be... So th- there's going to be like another thousand years before Jesus comes. There will be sons and kings and whatever who will be p- punished and flogged and whatever. But it won't all be Jesus. Okay. So when it says when he does wrong, the he might yeah, not necessarily because, be Jesus. Yes, yeah, that's right. Because the he is a son of David. So anyone who's a king is a son of David. So when he, son of David, does wrong, he'll be punished. When he, Jesus, is flogged, it won't be because he's done wrong, but he will still be a son of David. You with me? Okay, long answer. Hopefully that's helpful. So different horizons, and it gets tricky when we're looking at prophecy. But great question. I think that's a natural one. Carrie, you've got a question? Um, in the passage in 1 Kings where we have Jeroboam having a chat with Ahijah and they rip the cloak apart. Yes. I don't know if my maths is really, really bad. Oh, I'm glad bad. you picked this up, Carrie, but ask the question. But he rips it into 12 pieces and he says, you have 10, but I'm going to say one piece or tribe for Solomon's and for the line. Where's the other missing one? Okay, it's a great question. Yeah. Um, there is one tribe who's set aside for someone else. Anyone know? Sorry? Benjamin, Leviticus, uh, so, 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 not Leviticus, um, the Levites. He, here's the interesting thing, right? God said that one of the tribes would be his. The Levites are the tribe that are the priestly order, Right? And so I suspect the maths, although Benjamin is an interesting answer too, right? and then you've got half-tribes in as well, but I suspect the answer is um, 10 for the, the north, 1 for the south, and maybe it's the Levites is the, 11, uh, the 12th one. Um, although I don't know where Benjamin comes in, and Simeon is awkwardly placed, Alec, if you have a look at it on a map as well. But anyway, um, so my answer would be I'm speculating wildly, and I'm not sure, but I think it's Levi. 
because that gets me to 12 and that kind of makes sense. Is that all right? Great question, though. I'm not clear. I've got homework, team. Yes, Peter. Does the Old Testament teach us that we shouldn't expect too much from our kids? Uh, say one more time, Peter. Does the Old Testament teach us that we shouldn't expect too much from our kids? Uh, that's a really good question. Does the Old Testament tell us that we shouldn't expect too much from our kids? I think it tells us the opposite. I think it tells us that we should expect much from our kids um, and that the failure is when adults don't expect much from their kids. So my suggestion would be the reason that the next generation failed to live faithfully was because the parents had done a poor job of teaching them, not because they weren't worthy of the responsibility. Yeah, Peter, come back at me. Now, what about the parents that try everything are faithful Christians and the yep. children ignore. And so at that point, you're exactly right, uh, Peter. In Ezekiel, have a look at this, guys. In Ezekiel chapter 18, have a look at this. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 18. This is really important for us to understand. Uh, if someone finds it in the Pew Bibles, you can call out a page number. In Ezekiel chapter 18, there's an awesome whole chapter devoted to what about kids who don't do what their parents say, right? And here's what it says in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child, both alike beyond belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. So you're exactly right, Peter. Faithful parents can entrust the good news to their kids, and if they turn away, guess what? It'll be on the kids' heads, not the parents. So you're exactly right. It's up to us to be faithful in responding to the good news that we hear. And uh, so if you've got bad parents, hear the good news and be saved. If you've got good parents, guess what? Hear the good news and be saved. And you've got a head start. Amen. Thank you, Peter. Is there any other questions tonight? Very good. I'm sure it's time for me to sit down. Thank you. It's great having you interacting, guys. I love your questions. Thank you very much. I'm going to go and take a seat.